You are listening to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. All right, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. This is Michael Litchens with you once more, talking with Mr. David Clayton. A few of you might be familiar with him. David's published a few articles on the saints, and specifically the saints and how they relate to art here on Catholic Exchange. He's also a regular blogger at The Way of Beauty, which is also the title of his newest book, and the co-author of the Sophie Institute Press book, The Little Oratory, which has been one of our far and away bestsellers out there. David is an artist. He has a background in engineering mathematics. He's very passionate about beauty. He's also my former professor at Thomas More College, where he taught us uh, many things such as iconography, painting, and of course, math, which I'm going to try not to be hard on him for from all those classes, but we'll see how this goes. So David, welcome to the Catholic Exchange Podcast. Thank you, Michael. Very happy to be here. It's our pleasure to have you here. So David, to start off a little bit, can you tell us about your latest book, The Way of Beauty? And this has been a thing you've been doing. So what is The Way of Beauty exactly? Right. Well, what it uh, began as was uh, my wanting to paint art for the church and wanting to train and learn how to be an artist and uh, realizing that there was I couldn't, I just couldn't find a formal training anywhere. So I started to to research into the way that artists had trained in the past so that I could teach myself effectively. Or very, I think my idea was to found an art school and then enlist as its first student. Um, but what I did, I, I, there was lots of investigation into the style of art and what makes Christian art Christian, uh, essentially Christian but also in the formation of the artist so that they are able to apprehend beauty, to understand what it is, and they're open to inspiration from God so that their work is beautiful. And what I discovered was that there is a traditional formation in beauty that, in fact, used to be part of every education. Um, with this, this training which I discovered by looking but what artists did particularly is actually uh, useful to everybody because anything we do, we can do beautifully, and it's a mark of love if, if we do so. So we're doing it lovingly. Um, so in the book, I uh, describe in the first section um, this what this formation of beauty entails and how you can incorporate those into education. But in order to do that, I have to describe what Catholic education is to justify its inclusion in a general education. So what began as an art book actually became a book about education and the, really the place of the formation of beauty in that. So it's something that will be of interest, I think, to artists. I talked a lot about the styles of art and how that important that is. Anybody who wants to be creative, because it talks about how we engender creativity. Um, but also, I think anybody who is interested in the formation of students or children, because as I argue, it was always perceived, and I think it really stood, mm -hmm. should be still, as vital to the, the development of the, of the human person. That's yes. Good. So that's what the book's about. Sounds like you're focusing really that art and beauty and the ways of becoming an artist and appreciating beauty is something that's almost a universal call of the church. Is that something you've kind of explored and discovered in your book? 
It is. And in fact, one of the things that was, uh, that started this was, um, when I went for my interview at to- for Thomas More College. So this is several years now, but the president of the college, um, he asked me to describe my ideas for an art school and, um, I, I was able to do that. I was ready to answer the question. I was expecting that. Um, but he also then said to me something which no one had asked me before, which was intriguing. He said, is there an aspect of this training which is appropriate for all students, not just those whose vocation it is to be an artist? Uh, because we think that it's important they get this formation duty. And I thought about it and I said, yes, there is. This is something that can be done. And so that's when I developed the Way of Beauty as a program which was introduced at Thomas More College as part of the core curriculum. And I've been teaching it at a college level for about six years, something like that. Very interesting. And this is a question, of course, you probably get all the time, but uh, I need to ask it anyways. But <laughs> why does there seem to be a lack of appreciation of beauty? I think a new liturgical movement to some degree likes to call it a crisis of beauty or a crisis of aesthetics. But why do you think we've, from the Catholic Church, we've lost that site where you can even see it if you're, I was in Chicago this weekend and I saw it in the difference between the old great church, Polish churches of St. John Cantius or Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Mm-hmm. And then I saw some of the newer architecture and went, what happened? What do you, <laughs> what's some of your theories if I could hear some of those? Well, at the root of this is it's really for anybody to answer that question. It's a, you have to find a theory of culture. What, what is it that forms the culture? Um, so mm-hmm. the culture is really a manifestation that of our deepest, deep, deeply held convictions, ideas, our worldview. Everything mm-hmm. works its way out in the way that we do things based upon what we believe. And at its core, it is, uh, and John Paul II says this in Centesimus Annus, it's the, the most profound belief, of course, is our attitude to God. So then the question becomes, well, what affects our attitude to God? What, um, what, how can we affect that? And the, there's the very traditional principle that goes right the way back to the church fathers is, uh, in English would be rule of prayer, rule of faith, which, um, says that the way that we worship is actually the thing that influences our belief most profoundly. It's, it's not the, the teaching of the catechism in classes, for example, although, of course, that is a wonderful thing to do. But what really um, makes an impression on us, on our souls, an impress upon our souls about what we believe is the way that we worship. So when uh, the crisis of culture began, which would be about the 19th century. This has been going on a long time. It, it's, mm-hmm. we've seen it manifested and, and realized, um, very obviously in the last 50 years in a way that, uh, because what was there previously just collapsed at that point. But yes. really the, the seeds of it, uh, began in the late 18th century, early 19th century. Um, and the analysis of the people at the time and ever since, which culminated in Vatican II most, most recently, were that the, the cause of this are problems in the liturgy of the, of the church. We have to uh, have an active participation, which means that the whole person is engaged in the worship of God, in, in, and that worship 
should be beautiful and dignified and reflect the cosmic beauty which ultimately points to the beauty of heaven. And when we worship in harmony with that, that um, forms us as lovers of God, if you like, who then are able to love man well. And what we do at, at every level becomes beautiful. Um, now, that's therefore, you can see where this is leading in terms of the formation. That, that's at the core of the formation that I suggest uh, for artists. It begins, it begins with prayer, not with the paintbrush, strangely enough. And it does for all of us. And very interestingly, I, I, I only realized this recently, somebody pointed me to a little paper that Pope Benedict wrote in about the year 2000, something like that, as Cardinal Ratzinger, on the new evangelization. And I, I, it's funny because I read this, and so I went into my class, and uh, I asked my students there, what, what do you think the new evangelization is? And of course, the... There's a sort of conception that, that you know, it's like the other evangelization, except we use Twitter and Facebook or something. Yes. As one of my students pointed out, well, the, even the Pope has a has a, um, a Twitter account. I forgot what it, <laughs> he knew what it was. I forgot. But we were laughing about that. And, um, but actually, what the what Benedict says is that the new evangelization is actually recapturing of those things that caused the church to evangelize so successfully right back in its early years. And it comes down to prayer. It's We must, first of all, have a piety which is centered on the liturgy. And there's a balance of uh, liturgical prayer, which is the mass and the litur- liturgy of the hours, essentially, and then devotional prayer and personal prayer. And we need to, to balance that in, in our lives. What happens then is that we are transformed supernaturally. So it's not about PR campaigns. It's about um, us it, um, being transformed in Christ, actually being divinized, partaking of the divine nature, so that despite ourselves, we go out into the world and shine with the light of Christ in what we do, um, probably in ways in which we're unaware Um But it, it cannot be done separate from the supernatural. This is not about looking at the secular world and simply just copying their successes, which are not mm-hmm. supernatural. I mean, they're sort of they're subverted. But uh, we can do all of that, but in the end, it won't work um, unless we make use of the secret weapon, if you like, which is God. <laughs> Unfortunately <laughs> secret. You know, that We can partake of the divine nature. To, to, to use the phrase of anything, we participates in the creative work of God. And it's through this liturgical prayer. Now that then brings us to the, I think, why the Little Oratory, the book you mentioned, is so successful. That was designed specifically to offer that program of prayer to people in families with exactly this in mind. And in in the way that I conceived of these two books, uh, they go together. One gives you that personal piety focused on the liturgy. So in other words, it's a, it's about worship of God and it's how you bring that worship into the home so that in the family and in society we, be, we can become the agents of the new evangelization to transform the culture wherever we are. Very good. Yes, and all agreeable things there, I have to say. <laughs> good. Go back to your book, The Way of Beauty. I There's a 
phrase when I was reading through the description, I got my copy from Angelical Press, God love them. And what is that? The phrase that interested me was that you talked about how there's a formation in beauty, and you especially talk about it even in the education of children and students of all ages. I'm just curious, what does formation and beauty look like on a practical level, if you can <laughs> give us an example? Yes, well, it's it comes down to um, the first step is an enculturation, mm-hmm. whereby we are exposed to the beautiful things of the culture yes. um, in such a way that it excites wonder. Now, that does mean that in part we look at the great parts of the, of the tradition of the past. So in art, for example, it's not just artists, but everybody enjoys looking at beautiful art and seeing it and being introduced to it, going to art galleries, um, but works of literature, beautiful music, and drawing people in, um, enlivening their spirits in response to this. And this then creates a curiosity and a desire for more that... Um, Benedict, again, who's my great inspiration in this, talked about being wounded. He's quoting a, um, an Eastern father called Nicholas Cabalas, I think, from the Middle Ages. I, I, I might have the name wrong there. Um, but he's, the, the phrase he uses is wounded by the arrow of beauty, something like that, that it, it moves us and we desire what it is. But, of course, it creates a sense that we're missing something, and that's because it points beyond itself to God. And so that's the first thing. Then the next thing is actually involving people in the creation of beauty right from the start. So that Mm -hmm. as children, you want them to be copying and looking at works of art. And you you can start with coloring in books. And that's why we did, for example, with Sophia Press, the Sacred Heart coloring book. It's it's actually to try with very young children to try and introduce them to this idea, to um, with with music, you can have people singing and creating the music so that they become agents of creativity in conformity to beauty. And so what it's doing is it's teaching them a basic humility. They're following the, uh, the guidelines of great masters. So all training in uh, art, for example, begins with copying what others have done with understanding. Um, and then gradually you start to create your own things. But you can do that in any field of the culture that excites you. So it can be art, it can be music, it can be literature, gardening, and anything you like. I'm a great proponent of gardening is the sort of lost art. Um, I come from England where, of course, gardening is part of a culture much more. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about gardening for beauty, flower garden. It's... Uh, it's a much more masculine pastime. But anything like that, where you're appreciating and then creating in conformity to the works of a master, develops a humility and openness to inspiration. It, it, it actually trains us to create beauty. The other thing is that we develop this prayer life that um, opens up the soul to inspiration that we described. Um, and actually then start to teach people the truths of the faith that back up. And, you know, and again, that is as far as the person can go. Some are very intellectual and will study for years and years, go through the, the trivium and the quadrivium, the liberal arts, and then philosophy and theology, and, and will formally study all of this very, very seriously. Others will just be exposed to this in ways that are incidental to 
their appreciation of the great works of culture. And you can design that so that it, it's given to people appropriate to their age and their intellectual um, ability or inclinations and what their interests are. We covered a lot of interesting things, and a lot of this is coming back to, of course, the formation and the a new appreciation of beauty. And I think the natural question for anyone who may be new to some of our language is, where does this help me on the spiritual level? Like, how does learning to appreciate beauty, learning to appreciate art, how does that help me in my spiritual life? How does that help me enhance my prayer life? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, and, and it's, it's, it works both ways. That um, what I would say is that the easiest way to talk about that is really the talk about the thrust of the little oratory. I think. So that began as an idea that I had, and I proposed to Charlie McKinney, that's Sophia, and I said, what, what I'd like to do is just produce a little book that describes how we create an icon corner or an image corner for prayer. And so um, what I wanted to do was teach people to pray in such a way that they make use of visual imagery in the context of the liturgy. So in other words, you set this icon corner up in the home, people can pray the liturgy of the hours, which is something that lay people can do at home, and they can develop that ability to incorporate the visual sense with their worship. So in other words, what it's doing is helping the whole person to be engaged in prayer. Now, in order to do that, you need to have good art for your, um, for your prep. And one of the points I make for, uh, to art people who want to paint sacred art is how can you expect to do so and create art that nourishes prayer if you're not habitually praying with art that, uh, in your prayer that so that you understand the connection between the two. And so, one forms the other. If you're, if you're praying with art that comes from the tradition that is beautiful, and we just trust the tradition to do that, with, um, to choose for us, if you like, that the, it's the choice of people going, what Chesterton, who I know you admire very much, talks of the democracy of the, the dead. In other words, it's taking mm-hmm. into account what people in the past have done as well as those in the present. That's what tradition does. Um, we let that decide for us what is good art for, for our prayer, for the liturgy, for the church. And then that forms us in beauty. And then in turn, we can help. It, it, we create a culture which is beautiful. This forms us again. It reinforces this process where we start to appreciate what is beautiful so that when we return back to our prayer, um, our participation is deeper still. So in other words, we relate even more strongly um, and open ourselves up to the beauty that is in the liturgy, um, which now we hope is is reflecting the, the, the heavenly beauty. And again, Benedict uses the the phrase. He says it reflects the the beauty of the mind of God when we see this. So mm-hmm. it's 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 a cycle. It's a positive feedback process whereby it deepens our participation in the liturgy. Assuming there's beauty in the liturgy, okay, so it can be offset. If I wanted to introduce ugliness into churches, that is the best way to disrupt the whole of this process. But it deepens our participation in the liturgy and our worship of God, which in turn 
informs us deeply as people who go on and create a culture, that culture in turn draws people back to God and to the liturgy where they see um, beauty and worship which affects them profoundly. It's a, it's a, a never-ending cycle of exit and return. Exit and return is the phrase that's used, one reinforcing the other. And so you can begin with the culture, you can begin with the liturgy, um, but I would say the most powerful is the liturgy. That's where you get, if you want to change things, that's where you change it most profoundly. Yes, and I trying to remember my exact Latin, and my old Latin professors would hit me for not remembering this. Is it lex credende, lex... Lex orandi, lex credende, and if there's a Latin scholar there, I've probably pronounced it wrong. I've got vowel <laughs> in there as well. I've got a Latin scholar. But it's yes. lex, uh, lex orandi, lex credende, rule of uh, prayer, rule of faith is the, is the phrase. And I think he was called Prosper of Aquitaine in the 6th century who articulated that. But my understanding is that he was reflecting an idea which had long existed in the church, that this is how we affect people. And ultimately, the end of all of this, all education is supernatural. It's, it's, it's opposed to not develop our, our intellects in isolation, but actually form the person to be one who is fit for the worship of God so that they are transformed supernaturally and the greatest education we get is in the liturgy and it's divine wisdom. That's what we're doing. We're preparing the person to be able to receive through God's grace. And of course, we can't affect their personal cooperation. So that needs them to assent. Uh, and we, we leave that to, down to grace. But as far as we can to open the person up so that when through the worship of God, they are able to receive divine wisdom. And that's the end of education. It's not simply yes. the passing on of knowledge that that's, um, that we tell them in the classroom. Exactly right. Uh, the words I was looking for, thank you. Regarding uh, going back to the little oratory, I remember a lot of readers have said that they've really never thought about having an icon quarter or using images in, as an aid to prayer. As somebody who worships in the Melkai Church, that to me was like, "Oh yeah, guys, how come it's taking you so long to catch up?" But <laughs> yeah. have you been finding, have you been hearing similar things that people are finding that this is helpful, or did you find that helpful in your own life when you introduced it? Because I know you and I are fellow converts. Yes, I, I did. I, actually, I, I just want to go back one thing to the previous Please. conversation. Just occurs to me. I used the phrase "the end of education." What I meant, I, I'm using the end there in the sense of purpose. I don't, it just suddenly occurred to me I might be saying that all education <laughs> is over or something. That isn't what I meant. I'm using the, the word end in that sense to mean that is the, the ultimate purpose. It's what all of yes. it is directed to, which suddenly, because I, I remember when I first heard that, I, it confused me. So, okay, now to come back to your question, the icon corner. I got the idea by seeing Eastern Catholics and Orthodox Christians praying at home and seeing how actually the, what I remember particularly is one time uh, staying with a, an Orthodox family and they prayed night prayer, very simply chanted, Dad led the prayers, uh, the children wanted to join in, and the, the thing that happened was that they were taking turns to, to pray the songs, the children, and they wanted to do this, very, very simple chant. They all stood and they just faced the icon corner and looked at it um, as they prayed. 
And there was a disruption at one point because a fight broke out between the children because they were, they, they were fighting to, because each of them thought it was their turn to do the press. And dad had to come in and intervene and sort of <laughs> say, no, no, it's your turn. You'll get a chance next. And I thought, wow, here you have a case where kids are fighting to pray. If only we had that problem in, the, in many of our, in many of our homes. And so I started to look into the tradition of the icon form. And I realized, of course, it's part of the Western and the Eastern tradition. Um, and so, uh, it's just uh, at the moment, I think, more, slightly more common in the East. Um, but it's certainly something that helps hugely just to focus your prayer. And the, the phrase, the way phrase that was usually is just to orientate ourselves. Ideally, we orientate to the East because it symbolizes mm-hmm. the, the, we're waiting expectantly for the rising of the sun. At dawn, but yes. of course, you can't always um, arrange that. I mean, you, you're very often we're tied in ways that can't help. But but it does provide a focus. And then the other thing is that it's if your your visual senses are engaged with with heavenly beauty, um, it's it is adding to the prayer and it stops distraction in a way that's more fruitful, I think, than simply closing your eyes, which is what the habit of many Catholics in the Western Church. And so even what I do now, I find, is that when I'm in church, and, and I noticed this in the Melkai Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. I've been there a few times. And every time they mention the Mother of God, everybody turns and addresses the Mother of God through her icon. I just thought that's a great thing to do. And, and I kind of developed that habit with my icon corner at home. And I bring it to the church that. I try and think who are we praying to and where is the statue, where is the image, because then it, I feel like I'm talking to her or to him, depending on who it is, personally. And so mm-hmm. it, it really does help with my engagement with the liturgy. So then what happens is that in church, we don't want a beautiful environment simply as a backdrop to the worship. It actually needs to be something which engages and uh, with which with which we engage in the liturgy and the icon corner has certainly helped me develop that faculty and i think i have to say going to these eastern churches where it's um it's still very very strong is a lesson for someone like me who um really is predominantly in the, the western world um yes. to go to these eastern churches like the Malkite church is a wonderful church our lady of the cedars in yes Manchester, it you is. have to love it um, and, you know, just to see how people engage with the imagery as part of their worship. So then the whole person is immersed in the worship in a, in a new way. Fully agree. And we're just about out of time, David. But uh, before we leave, I wanted to give our listeners a chance to find out a little bit more about you. Can you tell us where we can find some of your artwork as well as where we can find your writings? And also, where can we order your books? <laughs> okay, so I have a blog thewayofbeauty.org. Um, I also write for the New Liturgical Movement website, which if you Google that, you can find it. David Clayton, New Liturgical Movement, or David Clayton, The Way of Beauty. Now, The Way of Beauty book, you can get it from Amazon, in fact, if you want to do that, or the Angelico Press website, which is angelicopress.com, angelicopress.com. 
and if you go there, you can see it. Also, they have all the, the pictures from the book are on the, the web page in color because uh, some of them are in black and white. So you can see the color pictures there. Um, and what was your final question? Uh, the, the little oratory, of course, is Sophia Institute Press and uh, Amazon. So you can get that there. Have I given you everything you asked for? Can't you remember. got everything. Okay, That's a great good. way to, for us to find you in. Of course, as always, we put all these links on our show notes at CatholicExchange.com. So any of you who are listening who didn't catch all that, just go to CatholicExchange.com. You can find all those links. But I do recommend David's uh, blog, The Way of Beauty. It's a very nice, refreshing blog uh, to read. Dave will cover anything from giving you small lessons about how to really understand an Eastern icon or even just reflections on why it's good to go out for a walk. This is especially important as we approach autumn in New England before the terrible winters approach, so please heed all his advice and teachings. David, thank you so much for joining us here at Catholic Exchange. It's always a pleasure to hear from you, to have your insights. Our listeners, I think, will very much benefit from this. And thank you for joining us. It will be great to hear more what you have in store for us. I can't wait to be back. I enjoyed it very much, Michael. Good to talk to you. Our pleasure as well. And all of you listening, again, you can go to CatholicExchange.com to find out more about David Clayton. We also have a few of his articles up. Those will all be linked in our show notes. You go to CatholicExchange.com, you'll see the podcast listed right on the right. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher and iTunes, of course, and our RSS feed is there, so there are many, many ways to listen. If you have any questions or any ideas you'd like for me or for David, you can send them to editor at CatholicExchange.com. Always glad to hear from you. Otherwise, have a blessed week. God love you. This is Michael Litchens with the Catholic Exchange Podcast. <laughs>